Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. I, I went through some pretty heavy head trips when I was first called into public office about how awful it would be if I let Harvey Milk down. And I want to say I have come to understand, as Harvey always understood, it ain't Harvey Milk we have to not let down. Harvey's dead, folks. But the people that Harvey Milk would not want us to let down is ourselves and one another. On May the 21st, we gathered and we expressed some pretty strong feelings. 
And the next day, a lot of people down here, including the mayor, were pretty badly pushed out of shape and were really worried if we could let gay people get together again because we seem to be a violent group. And, and I, I want to say it's good to express those feelings when you're angry. And that this community, as Harvey Milk understood, this community, because of our history of being pushed out and put down and told we were perverted, this community has a history that has more love in it and more compassion and more sense of justice and more possibility of peace than any other community I know. And we must be extraordinarily proud of that and share it with the whole wide world. So I'm going to quit now, but be assured that the one thing we must never, ever do if we're not going to let November 27, 1978 have been in vain is lose sight of the beauty of our own community and the incredible challenge of sharing that with the Asians, the Latins, the blacks, the old, the disabled, and everyone else who's been told they're weak and say to them, as we have had to say to ourselves, you're strong if you love each other and work together and are ready to fight when you're mad and love the rest of the time. Thanks a lot. In the 1970s, he washed up on the shores of the city by the bay and found himself at the center of a queer cultural and political revolution. He became part of Harvey Milk's inner circle. And when Harvey was assassinated, he was appointed to take his place. In the last episode, we followed Harry's journey through the 1980s when he led the community through a devastating pandemic. And then he won his greatest victory, the passage of a law that legally recognized same-sex relationships. But now we need to backtrack to 1987. The AIDS pandemic is still raging, and the fight for domestic partners is about to heat up, when Harry takes on the boldest campaign of his career. I'm Will Roscoe, and this is Give Him Hell Harry, the man who kept Harvey Milk's dream alive. Episode 6, Off to the Races. Harry's success is all the more remarkable considering some of the ideas he embraces. An ordained Methodist minister, by the time he becomes supervisor, he's an avowed atheist. And it gets worse. Harry also pals around with radicals. Among his earliest supporters are Tom Hayden, the 60s protester turned politician, and his wife, Jane Fonda. Uh, culturally, psychologically, economically, politically, uh, gays and lesbians are discriminated against. They are a very powerful movement, especially uh, in, in San Francisco. They don't need me, but they like me because... And they like our organization, the Campaign for Economic Democracy, because they know that working together we can be stronger than either entity is by itself. Hayden and Fonda had visited Harvey Milk in his camera shop as early as 1976. They liked Harvey's coalition politics. With Fonda, Hayden founded the Campaign for Economic Democracy. Funded by Fonda's workout videos, the CDC advocates for rent control, the environment, labor, and women's rights. 
and it recruits progressives to run for office. Are they using you or are you using for your economic democratic campaign? I hope they use me. What am I here for if not to be used by good people for good things? I'm part of an organization, and you could also be cynical as you are and ask me, isn't the organization using me? But you could also think, aren't I using the organization just the way the gays and lesbians that are here are using the organization that they're a part of? It helps give us perspective. It helps us keep our values intact. It increases our power, because as individuals, we don't have very much, but altogether, we have a lot of power. So everybody uses. The point is, what are you using for? If it's just for greed or selfish reasons, That's it's one right. thing. But if you're using each other for things that are good and positive, yeah, then why not? Harry became their poster child. Fonda raises funds for Harry at the Elephant Walk Bar just three weeks after it was trashed by the police during the White Knight riots. She and Tom are present a year later at a dinner honoring Harvey Milk's birthday, when Harry tells the audience, you don't need rights if you have power, and the era of patriarchy is coming to an end. And then he quotes Revelations. In 1982, Harry becomes a founding member of the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, and serves as its national vice chair for the rest of the decade. He's among a handful of elected officials willing to embrace the word socialism. Today, DSA claims a membership of 85,000. That includes rising stars like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib. In 2020, the self-proclaimed Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders wins 9.6 million votes in primary elections. But when I talked to Harry in 2009, he had moved on. I'm not going to deny being a socialist, but it's never really captured who I am. Because the word socialist to me sounds too bureaucratic or something, you know, it's not, it's more of the, the, a lot of the socialists that I knew nationally were, wrote books that didn't have any pictures in them. And, and I really liked more, I, I was more comfortable with the campaign for economic democracy, which talked about economic democracy rather than socialism because socialism is a method of governing economic democracy was more of a political strategy more of a social change agenda um, so i don't mean to disavow i'm not trying to move to the right here i was i went to classes at the socialist school remember the socialist school 29th Street, just off of Mission. Back before I knew Harvey Milk, I attended classes at the San Francisco Socialist School. Some of them were pretty boring. <laughs> really, 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 really boring. But I was always, not always, but I mean, San Francisco style. But I've never really liked the ideological stuff so much. I still don't. I mean, I was a professor and I taught political theory and I don't like doing that, but I like questions more than answers. I like challenging power more than having it. 
or more than you know, like having it to. But you know, to me, so socialism as an ans as a set of, of answers to political questions never interested me particularly much. Uh, just as theology as a set of answers never interested me very much. What what I like is you know Che Guevara and and uh, Emma Goldman and. You know, I preferred anarchism certainly to socialism because the anarchists, though some of them had their their ideology, but they were more about action, more about challenging power. And uh, that's who I really am. I'm I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm certainly you know very much not a fan of liberalism. Harvey had something to do with that. You remember the drag nuns, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence? You can't tell a story about San Francisco without having the sisters in it. I'm proud to have been named a saint by the sisters. But Harry was officially inducted into the order. He borrowed the name of an early 20th century anarchist, Voltairine de Clare, and called himself Sister Voltairine de Queer. I've always been drawn to anarchism, too, not the bomb-throwing kind, but the anarchists who embrace cooperation over competition and believe that society should be organized from the bottom up instead of the top down. To paraphrase Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, the ones who feel the pain of inequality and oppression the most are the ones who should have a place at the table creating the solutions. Atheism and socialism interest Harry intellectually, but they aren't his roadmaps when it comes to politics. As his aide, Sharon Johnson, told me, he lived in his head but made decisions from his heart. The issues that he cares about most always have a moral dimension. Politics, Harry writes in 1983, whether it's gay politics, women's politics, the politics of economic justice, must never get far from that sense of anger when a bully attacks someone who doesn't have the power to deal with it. Last question, Jane. How do you see the future of the gay movement in San Francisco in particular and in America in general? There's a lot of right people who don't like the power of the gays. It's hard to predict uh, in, a, in a real sense exactly what's going to happen. All we can know is that what, what this movement is seeking, which is nothing less than respect and justice and stopping discrimination against people because of sexual preference, you're on the side of the angels. I mean, it's just and it's right. And so if we're going to survive as a world, and we may not, but if we do, they're going to win. In San Francisco, people call themselves all kinds of things. Socialist, anarchist, atheist, radical fairy, vegan. And they're shrugged off as idiosyncrasies. 
Harry, for his part, isn't interested in winning converts to an ideology. He once told an interviewer, I don't hand people a socialist pamphlet and try to get them to rethink their position on monetarism. I organize people around their alienation from the corporate power structure. Nonetheless, Harry's walk on the political wild side will haunt him when he takes on the biggest campaign of his career. In the spring of 1987, he runs for Congress. After eight years as supervisor, he has solidified his support in the LGBTQ community and built coalitions with unions, environmental groups, neighborhood activists, and the African-American, Latino, Asian, and other communities. His wins and his leadership during the AIDS pandemic has earned him national attention. In San Francisco, whoever wins the Democratic primary wins the office. Harry and 13 other Democratic candidates throw their hats into the ring. One is a party insider with a reputation as a kick-ass fundraiser. Her name is Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi quickly runs up a double-digit lead in the polls. But Harry runs a tough campaign. Pelosi is a limousine liberal. If elected, she will be a tool of the rich and powerful. Harry tells the press, I plan to push issues like peace and AIDS to the edge. I want to have the most progressive agenda in the Democratic Party, not one for socialites. On the campaign trail, Pelosi comes off as uncomfortable and scattered. In a televised debate, she struggles to break through. Harry is fluent and confident. But then, when she is questioned for having loaned $250,000 to her own campaign, she fires back. Four supervisors had just taken donations from downtown developers and then voted to give them a street. One of them was Harry Britt. The press dubs Harry the socialist homosexual. But Harry runs on his record, and that's enough to win him endorsements from the firefighters, the service workers, the Sierra Club, and neighborhood groups, even the Alice B. Toklas Club. A full-page ad in a gay paper lists hundreds of endorsers. A half-page ad for Pelosi in the same issue lists half as many. Pelosi raises twice as much money as Harry, but he steadily gains in the polls. By late March, the headlines in the gay press declare, Brit pulls even with Pelosi. The Pelosi campaign starts sending flyers targeting Republican voters. On April 7, when the polls close and the counting starts, Harry mounts up large leads in the Castro, Noe Valley, and Mission districts, while Pelosi grabs the lead in the city's white, middle-class neighborhoods. When all the ballots cast at polling stations are counted, the two candidates are tied. And so Harry heads to the victory party at San Francisco's legendary disco, the Trocadero Transfer. He hates social gatherings, he doesn't drink, but tonight he tastes victory. The crowd is ecstatic. Harry's on the verge of becoming the first openly gay and the most progressive member of the U.S. Congress. As the excitement builds, he gets on the dance floor and, wait, did you see that? Harry's making out with a dashing young man. 
But as the night wears on, the absentee ballots put Pelosi ahead. She wins with 36% of the vote, just four points ahead of Harry. The music stops, the lights come on, and Harry concedes. It's a big hurt. Nearly 20 years later, Harry will still be convinced he could have won if only they had had a stronger third candidate to take votes from Pelosi. He knows how to play the game. But Harry has united the queer community, and having come so close, he's increased his political leverage. The following year, he's re-elected supervisor for the fourth time in a landslide. Earning the most votes of any candidate, he becomes president of the Board of Supervisors. These days, Nancy Pelosi is happy to declare that her city is the capital of the progressive movement in this country. But it was Harvey's people, people like Harry Britt, and many grassroots leaders and activists who made San Francisco progressive, while Nancy was holding fundraisers on Pacific Heights. Flash forward, three years later, November 1990. It's another party at another dance club, the Mighty Colossus. And Harry Britt is standing on the balcony surveying a jubilant crowd of activists and volunteers. And this time, the celebration is for real. Domestic partnerships have been approved by an overwhelming margin. And two lesbians, Roberta Actenberg and Harry's friend Carol Migdon, are elected supervisors. The queer schoolteacher turned comedian Tom Amiano is elected to the school board and a lesbian is elected a Superior Court judge. It becomes known as the Lavender Sweep. For years, Harry had occupied the one gay seat at the table at City Hall. Now, queers are winning seats at all the tables. So we've reached the early 90s now. Harry's been keeping Harvey Milk's goals alive for over a decade. The Lavender Sweep has brought in several people into positions of power. How did Harry's time as a supervisor come to an end? Hmm. Well, um, by that time, by the time of the Lavender Sweep, by 1990, he was burnt out. The epidemic was personally devastating for him. And the responsibilities that he had in that role as the elected official of the queer community were just overwhelming for a man who was so essentially shy and uh, unassuming and struggling with his own inner demons. Harry begins to let up. He stops showing up for every committee meeting. He can't be found in his office. And the rumors start. Where is Harry Britt, the Bay Area reporter wants to know. Then, one day, he's spotted at Golden Gate Fields, a racetrack on the opposite side of the bay. In the first episode, we heard Harry talk about the strange things his brain could do. In one of our last conversations, he described exactly what that meant. Uh, I don't know how much of this I want to get into, but the, the racetrack was a, was really a survival mechanism for me. 
I have, uh, God, I don't know how much I want to talk about this, but you know, I've mentioned before the, the many minds that I have. <laughs> uh, one of them is a, and I guess this falls in the OCD category, but it also helped me win a National Merit Scholarship. I, it is a puzzle solving. Um, at, at all times, all times, my mind is going in a puzzle-solving kind of way. People are going to think I'm weird, but you know, who cares? I, I, I form, I divide sentences that I say or hear from other people, radio, TV. I divide them, the letters, into groups of four, and I repeat. I pronounce each of those four letters, even if they're all consonants, and I, I, I do them in a series until I come out with an, with an even number, you know, with 16 or 32 or whatever. And then I go back and do them in alphabetical order, the words, and then I do them in reverse alphabetical order, the words. Now, I can't say I do that with every sentence because it's not even not be possible, but I do it all the time. And uh, so if somebody says, get up, I say, get up, get up, get up, get up. That goes through my head with computer speed. So I've always had the need to feed that particular animal <laughs> with something to do. So Harry did crossword puzzles, scheduled 156 games for every Major League Baseball team in his head, and made a special set of cards to play with. During his last term in office, he discovered his brain loved horse racing. What I enjoyed about the racetrack was not being there and betting. I didn't bet. I didn't have money to bet. I, I didn't have any extra out of my twenties. Well, back in those days, my my ninety-six hundred dollar a year salary did not allow a lot of gambling. Uh, certainly not a lot of losing. So. Uh, I would, I would spend an enormous amount of time, not at the racetrack, but right here, with my racing form, calculate, and I, and I kept records of every trainer. <laughs> I, I took to the track a, a file about this big with hundreds of index cards in it, recording all of the horses that each trainer had run in the last few years, and whether they won the third race off a layoff or after a four for a long workout or with a certain job, you know, I had all that information. I think I had more information than anybody else at the racetrack. I know I did. Um, and so what I enjoyed was the figuring, solving the puzzle of who's going to win the race. And I was pretty good at it. I was never really good at betting because when I, when I got into betting, I got out of that part of my brain and got into a, another part of my brain that's not too smart. Harry sees quite a few other elected officials, journalists, and union guys at the track. He wouldn't tell me their names. But when a TV reporter corners him at Golden Gate Fields one day and asks him what he thinks of satellite wagering, Harry cheerfully replies, this is great. I can go to City Hall in the morning and then after lunch come over here. Wrong answer. But Harry is the no apologies guy, remember? It's just two or three days a week, not on the weekends, usually. He doesn't like the crowds on the weekends. 
So that was my, the joy of handicapping, uh, was all that stuff. And uh, I, uh, I started doing it in 1983, really. But I, I won't buy that it interfered with my work as a supervisor because, uh, you know, without it, I would have been crazier than I was. And uh, it, uh, you know, I never, I never missed a single board meeting. Couldn't because they didn't have racing on Monday, uh, except on holidays, in which case they didn't have board meetings either. And uh, but it was uh, it was a, a, a rescue. You know, you go to the you go to city hall and you get yelled at by somebody, or you do something you wish you hadn't done, or you hurt somebody's feelings, or you have to appoint one of two people to a committee, and you feel bad about the other one, and. I couldn't deal with those things except by getting out my horse racing thing. So uh, that was what the horse racing was about. But there are other reasons Harry is missing in action. Back in Texas, his parents are dying of cancer. And someone needs to watch out for his younger brother, who suffers from schizophrenia. Harry finds himself back in Port Arthur, entangled in family business. So I felt drawn to Port Arthur. And while I was there, and dealing with Bill, and dealing with, with Dad, and dealing with my Baptist grandmother, and all the other, and dealing with just the crap that is Port Arthur, Texas, um, I went back into my little boy mess a bit. Because uh, there wasn't any Harvey Milk Democratic Club there. There, there, there wasn't any Pi Kappa Phi fraternity there. All there was there was Port Arthur in the house where I, that I had left when I went off to Duke. And uh, the pictures of Jesus and the deer heads on the wall and the kind of the country music and the whole the dirty air from the oil refineries, all of that stuff was there. And so I, I'm not making excuses for anything, just saying I, I lost some of my edge, <laughs> you know. Uh, there wasn't anyone to talk to. I could read a book, but I couldn't talk to anybody about it in the whole city. There was no one to talk to about it. I had no friends from high school. The friends I had in my school would all have moved away. When his mother dies, Harry's brother comes back to San Francisco with him. Now, Harry told me, his life was extremely difficult. His brother had to be hospitalized on more than one occasion. Harry needs to be with him almost constantly. Harry will maintain that if he had run for re-election in 1992, he would have won. But he's ready for a change. So when my mother died, um, my brother came to San Francisco with me. And I mean, I would go to City Hall, but I would, I always felt I had to leave and go home as quickly as possible. Um, and I actually was trying to figure a way, I was going to take a job up in Lake Tahoe, I was trying to find a, a reality that Bill and I could share 
because I felt a huge amount of responsibility for Bill. Because I've never done, you know, I was the lucky son and he was the unlucky son. And I wasn't thinking about my future on the board of supervisors. I was thinking about my future with Bill. But I didn't say anything about Bill to anybody. So I was offered this job up in Lake Tahoe, basically renting a little motel. And I thought, well, this is something Bill can help me with. It'll be a safe place. We'll be together 24 hours a day. And I can have my, my books and my TV, and it won't be a bad life for me. So that was the plan. I had accepted this job, and I was going to move up to Tahoe. A bill ended up moving back to Port Arthur. He just couldn't. He couldn't deal with San Francisco. Um, I took him to a 49ers game. We left at halftime. I, you know, I, all the stuff you do in San Francisco that you can't do in Port Arthur, which is everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much. It didn't yeah. he missed Port Arthur? He he, and he went back to Port Arthur, and shortly thereafter, he died. And. We don't know how he died. We tried to find out. He just, they found him dead in his apartment one day. He'd been shaving and he just fell on the floor and died. So we don't know. They said it wasn't a heart attack. We don't know. He smoked four packs a day for like 20 years. It may have something to do with tobacco. So anyhow, by that time, in 1990, Carol Mignon was elected to the Board of Supervisors, who was a very good friend of mine. And for the first time, I felt I could leave. As long as I was the only gay person on the board, I, there was no option of leaving. There was an option of not doing a very good job, and that's what I was doing. But I couldn't leave. But when Carol was elected, I felt the freedom to leave. And I, by that time, I was so beaten down by the combination of AIDS and, and my parents' death and Bill um, and poverty uh, that I decided. And then I was... Uh, I was offered a teaching position at New College, and I stayed on the board for a few months after that, but I was so happy teaching and so unhappy on the board. And by this time, a considerable portion of the leadership of the lesbian gay world hated me because I hadn't been coming to their dinner dinners, <laughs> which I never did very much anyway. Um, I was not news anymore. I think a lot of people still respected what I'd done, and you know I didn't feel like hated. And I, you know, I'd been president of the board just two years before, so. Um, but it was time. It was definitely time. Methodist minister done, elected official done. Now Harry starts his third career. As a graduate student in theology, he loved teaching. So he takes a position at New College, an alternative school with an open admissions policy that draws queers, women, people of color, poets, and activists. And for 15 years, he directs the Weekend Degree Completion Program, a program for adult learners returning to school to complete a degree. For Harry, it's a return to his roots, living the life of the mind. It was like being president of the Milk Club again, he told me. Harry meets and counsels all the incoming students. And as a teacher, I was like, all of my students, every single one of them, was suffering from not having that freedom mm -hmm. 
to somehow still trying to deal with expectations and stories and stuff that just was preventing them from being freer. And a lot of them were doing their, their yoga stuff and, you know, trying to improve. And uh, I like to think as a teacher, uh, I was able, in a lot of cases, to help students see themselves, at least the way I saw them, not, not in terms of good and bad, but just in terms of what was real and, and help people become a little more able to cope with the reality of their lives instead of the programming of their lives. Harry discovers that the school's administration isn't that interested in education. They don't pay much attention to what he teaches. So he does a course on the political history of God, courses on anarchism, a course on the summer of love, one on environmental science, Noam Chomsky, and, of course, LGBTQ politics. And when he isn't in a classroom, he's meeting with students. He would meet them where they were, one of his colleagues told me, and extract from them more than they ever thought possible. But as much as he loves teaching, Harry's still a political handicapper. And in 2002, he sees an opportunity to win a new office and go to the State Assembly in Sacramento. It will be his final campaign. His slogan, Give him Hell Harry. His old union allies and progressive groups rally behind him. Carol Migdon raises funds. But by then, Harry had been out of the public eye for a decade. Mark Leno, his opponent, is also gay and also a former supervisor. He's well-connected and a good campaigner, and the camera loves him. Harry loses, once again, by four points. When New College closes in 2008, Harry enters full retirement. A year later, we start recording our conversations. Harry looks back on his life, deepening his reflections on Harvey Milk, and wondering about the future of the queer movement. What's your your question, though, about who are the good guys? Or how do you know? You know what to what what see know. that? If I don't say anything else, this is what I want to say, and I'm not doing a good job of it. In the '70s, the dominant politics of the Human Rights Campaign Fund and Alice B. Toklas and the uh, state gay rights groups in Texas and, and everywhere was gay rights. It was the extension of, it was trying to pass laws that extended civil rights protections to one more group of people, like, like the African Americans had gotten their law passed. Uh, there were efforts. There was an equal rights amendment for women that was in the works, and we wanted to be uh, we want to be included in the list of minorities who it was wrong to be unkind to. 
Now, the way you do that with gay rights politics is to find the most liberal, dependably liberal politicians, straight politicians you can find, and support them, and trust in their basic goodness to take care of you. Harvey hated that politics more than he hated John Briggs. And it was, it is a terrible, you know, you know, the reason that I'm trying to figure a way to get back in, not as a elected candidate, you know, candidate for anything now, is because I find that that mentality is flourishing in the gay marriage debate and in the Human Rights Campaign Fund and Alice Butokos and a lot of other places. And I feel like Harvey would be sick about that because we didn't need Harvey Milk for that. We had that before Harvey came along. That's who I was before Harvey came along. That's who we all were except the radical left that was, you know, wanted a Marxist utopia. So Harvey didn't want us to look for who are the good liberal politicians that we can trust. Cecil Williams also, the same approach. Uh, because he was so convinced that we were not supposed to be a minority that you have to be nice to. We needed to be a, 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 a minority that you fear. That we had to have, that it was, had to be about empowerment. It was much more like uh, Malcolm X or uh, my hero W.E.B. Du Bois uh, saying, let's not, let's not do our step in fetch it imitations so people will be nice to us, which is what David Goodstein was doing and Alice was doing and the human rights. I shouldn't attack Alice so much because Alice was the only game in town and so I was a member of Alice. A lot of people, that's where you were. There was a left wing and a right, and a right wing. But once the once our club, the San Francisco Gay Democratic Club, came into being, then Alice became pure, unadulterated suck asses. Okay. <laughs> so, to me, Harvey Milk would not be pushing for us to have the same rights that straight people have. Though you, you have to do that. I mean, in my day, we were working for the rights to be cops, the rights to be in the army, uh, and, and a lot of other offensive denials of our basic citizenship and we always will have to do that that's not I'm not against gay rights I'm not against gay people having the right to marry but I'm against making that the fundamental strategy of our movement because it becomes 70s again and what Harvey Milk wanted for the 90s and the, and beyond was a a movement that saw through the goodness of our liberal protectors. And just as Malcolm X and so many other African-American leaders had said that racism is not just being unkind to poor, weak black people, it points to a, something fundamentally and structurally wrong with the American way of life that goes beyond African-American experience. And feminists said, it's not just, you know, Who's worrying about the ERA at this point in time? 
you know, it should have passed. It's offensive that it didn't pass. But it did, its failure did not prevent women and feminists from extraordinary achievements in the wake of its not passing. And there are, were those back then who felt if we could pass the ERA, it, the women's movement would no longer be necessary, basically. And, and the same with, you know, AB 101, this is, yeah. this is, this is Christ coming home. And the, right, and the gay bars would disappear, we'd have no need for them. So that's right. Uh, that's all based on a very, and I'm, I'm criticizing my own people and I'm criticizing myself because that's the part of me as a good young Methodist boy who really wanted everybody to be nice to everybody else and thought it was a shame that black people were treated badly. And it's, you know, and it's a shame that we keep beating up on Latin America and why don't we just be nice to each other? And that was my politics and that to me is very, I'm, I feel bad about that now. <laughs> so to me, if there's gonna be a queer movement and I'm not sure there is right now, if there's gonna be a queer movement, it has to say that there's something about our experience as queers that gives us an insight into something that's wrong with our culture that's beyond homophobia that needs to be changed. Affordable housing, stable neighborhoods, police reform, anti-racism, equal pay for women, domestic violence, queer rights. Did I leave anything out? Oh yeah, services for seniors, free public transit, access to health care, the environment, I could go on, but you get the idea. Today, these issues are part of a progressive agenda championed at the national level by folks like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and many others. Four decades ago, Harry Britt, the socialist, atheist, homosexual supervisor, was fighting out these issues one by one with Dianne Feinstein and her friends downtown. Diane wielded her mighty veto pen again and again. Issue after issue was put before the voters. Progressive measures were passed. Sometimes they were repealed. But in the process, coalitions were built and voters were registered and mobilized. And even when they lost, they built power. Harry loved retirement, at least that's what he told me. He certainly did love being out of the spotlight. No more meetings, campaigns, or drama. As long as he kept his diabetes under control, he stayed active and lively. But as he approached his 80s, he began to experience dementia. And of course, it got steadily worse. I knew something was wrong when I arranged a dinner date with him, showed up at his apartment, and no one came to the door. Phone calls went unanswered. Harry spent the last two years of his life in a memory care facility at San Francisco's Laguna Honda Hospital. The first time I visited, Harry seemed out of place. Most residents were physically as well as mentally disabled. Harry was walking about, proudly wearing his bright blue Service Employees International Union jacket, ready to talk about the old times, basketball, or Harvey Milk. He spent his hours doing Sudoku puzzles. 
but within a few minutes after his visitors left, Harry had no memory of having seen them at all. Each time I arrived, he would say, How did you know I was here? On one occasion, he walked out the front door and made his way back to his apartment. In December 2019, a stroke left Harry bedridden and barely able to speak. When I visited him, I noticed an envelope on his bedstand. It had the seal of the United States Senate, and there was a great bouquet of flowers. Inside was a note from Senator Dianne Feinstein. She had heard about Harry's latest setback. She sent him her best wishes. Diane was a nice Jewish girl who had been taught by nuns, prim, proper, straight-laced, a dragon lady, a Pacific Heights matron. Those are some of the ways she was described back then. Today, the sexist undertone of these put-downs makes me wince, and the media coverage that never failed to describe her fashion statements. When she announced her first run for mayor in 1971, the papers reported that the slim matron with flashing blue eyes selected a powder blue outfit with white buttons. She was also six feet tall, but they rarely mentioned that. But the fact is, Diane pushed our buttons. Soon after she became mayor, she told the Ladies' Home Journal, the gay community is going to have to face this. It's fine for us to live here respecting each other's lifestyles, but that doesn't mean imposing them on others. Ouch. So it's not surprising that Harry and Diane tangled over issue after issue. For those of us outside of City Hall, it looked like mortal combat. Feinstein had opposed domestic partners, police oversight, stronger rent control, limits on downtown growth, even divestment from South Africa, almost every issue Harry fought for. And she had a reputation for a short temper. On her last day in office, her staff wore T-shirts that read, I survived the mayor's staff meetings. So it didn't surprise me that Diane, as Harry always called her, came up often in our conversations. What did surprise me was Harry's attitude toward his political adversary. She didn't put on her armor much. To me, you know, I have good feelings about Diane. I was a big problem for her. She was a little bit of a big problem for me. Uh, because I never was able to convince her of things that seemed right. Diane's, when Diane looked at San Francisco, it was a very compassionate gaze. It was a very loving gaze. She, it hurt her that people were were hungry. It, it tore her heart when the HIV epidemic broke out. She really loved this city and she wanted it to be everybody here to have a good life. No question about that. The problem is that her gaze was from Pacific Heights. She could not, you know, she could go to the mission and, you know, hold the hands of sick people in the mission. But she was not a mission person. Uh, she was not a, a Latino, and she was not a lesbian, and she was not 
her worldview was just top of the hill. And um, I didn't even know where the tops of the hills were. So we had a big class, it was a class problem. But she was definitely benevolent. Harry told me a story that reveals what it was like to deal with the prim and steely politician from Pacific Heights. In the mid-1980s, South Africa was boiling over. Anti-apartheid activists were being arrested, detained, and tortured. Harry Britt and Willie Kennedy proposed legislation to withdraw city funds from banks and businesses with ties to South Africa. My memory of the anti-apartheid ordinance Uh, the fun part of it was that um, I had the votes. People weren't going to vote against that. <laughs> and Mayor Feinstein invited me to come into her office. And I, I, I was usually not clear what the agenda was when I got an invitation to uh, room 200, but I got into a room and, and the, the mayor's office was filled with big shots, CEOs and CFOs of B of A, Bechtel, Transamerica Corporation, Ford, some part of Ford, not Mr. Ford himself. Uh, amazing, I mean, Michael Moore would be impressed. Uh, and it was packed. Now, they were all men and they were all white. Uh, and I was given sort of the dunce seat over in the corner uh, of her desk. And she said, Harry, these are, you know, we all think apartheid is, is a terrible thing. But I want you to listen to these people. She said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not paraphrasing much because it was a memorable thing. Uh, I always found her very memorable. Uh, she said, these are the people who saved the cable cars. And so she wanted me to weigh that against Apartheid. Ah, the cable cars. They're, they were going to, you know, they had a civic campaign to raise some money or something. I wasn't involved in that campaign. So, uh, I, Supervisor Kennedy may have been in the room. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I'm embarrassed not to be sure. But it was, I was the invitee. And one by one, they made little statements and proposed amendments that they wanted to make that would condemn apartheid but would protect the interests of their particular business. But there were maybe a dozen of those. Uh, I remember that Ford uh, wanted it to only apply to businesses for whom their South African interests were a certain percentage of their overall profits. So if you were Jim's hardware store, you'd be affected. But if you were Ford Motor Company, you wouldn't. I remember Ford made a strong case that the Ford company in South Africa was not the same company as the Ford company in the United States. They both sold Pintos or, or whatever, but it was a separate thing. And they, they each had a, an amendment that would have, this is how they do it in Washington, by the way, they each had an amendment that would uh, keep the 
opening paragraph of the law the same, but would exempt each of them. And if you exempted all of those groups, there wouldn't be anybody else left to cover except Jim's hardware store, who had already gone out of business because of Ace. <laughs> anyway, so I, I, it was just one of those events to think, you know, here's little Harry Brett from Port Arthur, Texas, that has had trouble with life, and I've got all these big shots spending yeah, time yeah. seriously proposing to me that I do these horrible things. <laughs> well, and, this, uh, this, this, the thing about the story is that for those of us who are not on the inside, we we assume that's the way it always is. That's yeah. the way it always is. It's a, a bald moment of power being exercised. Yeah, I, I never it's had a moment like that. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, because I wasn't usually invited to the meetings. Um, but it was a memorable occasion. And, and Diane was classically, she was well-behaved. Uh, I think she was the only woman in the room except her secretary, or her uh, scheduled person who came in from time. I remember that. And um, and then at the end of the meeting, uh, there wasn't any discussion. There wasn't any, okay, Harry, now you know what you are. There wasn't any of that. She All she had done was offer them a chance to make their case. And all I was expected to do was to listen. And it took a long time for them to make their case. So, meeting ended. Uh, amendments were not introduced. Soon after she appointed Harry, Feinstein was heard to say that it was the biggest mistake of her career. Harry believed that she didn't trust him. But Sharon Johnson, one of Harry's aides, thought Diane did trust Harry in her way because he was always honest with her. And she knew his positions were based on principles, not political self-interest or campaign donations. And, in an ironic way, Diane made Harry stronger. When she vetoed his legislation, Harry and the progressives took the issue to the ballot box. They lost as many times as they won, but the wins were stronger because they were based on the will of the people. And she eventually came around on at least one of Harry's issues. In 2008, Senator Feinstein was a leading opponent of Proposition 8, the ballot measure that banned gay marriage in California. Near the end of his life, Harry was honored by the Board of Supervisors for his years of service. When he spoke, he made a point of thanking Diane Feinstein for appointing him, and he cried. She saw something good in me, he said. In March 2020, Laguna Honda Hospital was shut down to visitors due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Harry Britt died alone on June 24, 2020. After his death, Diane issued a statement. Harry was a progressive before the word became vogue. He was a powerful advocate for the gay community who never took no for an answer. Strong, passionate advocates like Harry have done so much for San Francisco and the country, and I'm glad to have known him. Did you catch that? Diane actually said the word progressive. Like maybe it wasn't such a bad thing. 
Next week, in the final episode, we'll hear from some of Harry's closest friends and supporters. We'll hear more from Harvey Milk's audio will, and we'll join Harry one more time when he gives his last speech on the 40th anniversary of the Candlelight March for Harvey Milk. Next week, the final episode, Strength, Power, Beauty. Give Him Hell Harry is written and hosted by Will Roscoe. She's produced by me, Devlin Camp. You can find tons of info about this show and other Queer Serial podcasts at QueerSerial.com. And follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Serial for all sorts of images from the stories on the podcast. And for bonus episodes and lots of queer history deep dives, join me over on Patreon. You can support Queer Serial for $3 a month and get the entire backlog of bonus episodes, including the new bonus podcast, The White Knight Riot Interviews, in which I talk to rioters who were there at the White Knight Riots. Coming up next week in the final episode of Give Em Hell, we'll hear from some of Harry's closest friends and supporters, interviewed by Will Roscoe. And over on the bonus podcast, over the next several weeks, we're bringing you the full cuts of those interviews with activist Gwen Craig, filmmaker David Weissman, San Francisco AIDS Foundation director Tim Wolfred, supervisor Tom Amiato, Harry Britt's aide Sharon Johnson, and Gay Life host Randy Alfred. Listen to those interviews in addition to my bonus series, Infamous Crimes, The White Knight Riot interviews, only on my Patreon. Also on my Patreon, you can listen to tons of queer history bonus podcasts, dive into fabulous research from the queer archives with me, and you'll find all sorts of other homo history odds and ends. There is a link in the episode notes to patreon.com slash queer serial. Thank you so much for your support, preserving and sharing queer history. Hey, girlfriend. Hey, dude. <laughs> I've got some questions. I'm sorry, dudette. Did you lose faith in Harry during his last term uh, when the major political goals became things like marriage and these very very basic 1970s things like marriage and military. Did you ever lose faith in Harvey and Harry's goals for the movement? Oh no. No. Uh, I, um, I did appreciate Harry leading the fight for domestic partnerships. It was a big fight. It took years and, and eventually that we won it and um, saw him as a leader in that. So just by the virtue of winning a fight, especially at the ballot box, all of Harvey's politics are completely relevant to today's politics. I just, maybe if I went out and and, and thought for a while, I'd think of something that was off the wall that we wouldn't do now. Certainly his sense of humor and his teasing would not bypass now. You know, like he's uh, calling Michael Wong um, my little yellow lotus blossom. Ouch! That would not fly. Ouch! Not. But then Michael snaps back, oh Harvey, you're a credit to your proclivity. So he could <laughs> give as good as Harvey could give. And in our little gay world, we will joke like that mm-hmm. when we know that um, uh, we're dealing with it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but no. Uh, he, there was that whole thing about him, like winding down for the last term that he had and uh, like a lot of sniping about that. I don't know what I thought at that point in time uh, about it particularly, but at that point we had three queers on the board of supervisors and um, it was certain that we would always have people there going forward. Can you tell me about the last time you saw Harry Britt? Well, yes. um, It was Laguna Honda Hospital He had had a stroke in December 2019. 
it was shut down due to COVID in March. So it's sometime in that January, uh, February period. Uh, he had had a stroke. Uh, he um, was bedridden. Um, really difficult time communicating. What he heard, I could, couldn't tell for sure. But um, uh, I did talk to him about... Um, I was beginning to think of using the interviews I had done with him 10 years earlier as a podcast. Why did I ever think of a podcast? Oh, yes, Devlin Camp. I've been girl. listening to your podcast for a couple years. And I said, you know, I know somebody who does podcasts. And I think he'd be interested in doing something with this. Mm. And... Uh, the physical reaction was that he perked up at it. And I, that was really one of our last conversations. Mm -hmm. well, I'm honored that you thought of me to help keep his story alive. Um, because you, all, you were already such an incredible influence on the first season of Queer Serial. Because your texts on Harry Hay, the, the, the movement in the words of its founder, was a, an, an, a vital piece mm -hmm. of telling Harry Hay and the Mattachine story. So uh, I'm honored that we get to d collaborate together on telling another person's story. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, and you are a very good Judy. And you are the best Judy. No, you are the best. <laughs> no, you're the best Judy. <laughs> okay, maybe I am. Okay, I'll give it to you. <laughs> Big, Big thanks, thanks to, to our, our fabulous sponsors. sponsors. The Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club. The One Archives Foundation. The GLBT Historical Society. The James C. Hormel yeah. LGBTQIA Center at the San Francisco you Public Library. You got Laundry. it. <laughs> oh, Smiter. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. <laughs> the Making Gay History Podcast. Shaping San Francisco. And Lady Joey Kane and our fiscal sponsor, Calamus. And everyone who supported the show on Indiegogo. Especially those on the highest tier, including Susan Gray, a.k.a. Marianne Singleton. Sam Tupperman-Gelfont and Pat Gorley. Sharon P. Johnson, with big hugs. And an anonymous, longtime supporter of Queer Serial. Thanks, Mattachino. This podcast is produced with the support of the Murray Hong Family Trust, in honor of the legacy of Stephen O. Murray. And thanks to Cass Brayton at the Archives of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. You can support the sisters at thesisters.org. And thanks to Anchor SF for providing a fantastic recording studio for the podcast. Special thanks also to Daniel Nicoletta for providing photos and Harvey Milk's complete audio will. Audio is used courtesy of the GLBT Historical Society, KPIX-TV, and KQED San Francisco. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening! Very cute. By the way... June 15th, 2020. A historic ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court today outlawing job discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or transgender identity. John Yang breaks down what the justices said and what it means. The court's decision declaring that a six-decade-old civil rights law protects gay and transgendered workers from employment discrimination was stated clearly and simply. 
An employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. Sex plays a necessary and undisguisable role in the decision, exactly what the law forbids. The ruling is a milestone for gay rights and comes at a time when minorities across the country are speaking out for justice. As in this joint Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ rights march yesterday in Los Angeles. Before today's decision, it was legal in 28 states to fire someone or refuse them a promotion simply because they were gay or transgender. The justices ruled in three cases, two involving men who sued after they said they were fired for being gay. The transgender rights case was brought by Amy Stevens, who was dismissed from a Michigan funeral home after she told her boss she would begin living as a woman. The company said she failed to follow the dress code. Today, her wife Donna issued a two-word statement. We won. <laughs> 